Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kumar. And I'm Rahul Damania, and we are coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Welcome to our today's episode of a 14-year-old girl who presented with hypotension after a suicide attempt. Here's the case presented by Rahul. A 14-year-old female with past medical history of depression and oppositional defiant disorder presents with dizziness. Her mother states she was in her normal state of health when on day of admission, she noticed the patient to be dizzy, slurring speech, and pale. The mother became very concerned about the dizziness as the patient was stumbling and few hours prior to presentation became increasingly sleepy. The patient does have a history of depression and is controlled on sertraline. Other medications in the home include metformin, amlodipine, and clonidine. The patient denies ingesting any substances. She does have a prior attempt two years ago after an argument with her mother. However, her mother states she was able to, quote, stop her prior attempt. She presents to the emergency department via EMS. Her vital signs are notable for a heart rate of 50 beats per minute with occasional PACs and non-conducted QRS complexes on telemetry. Her blood pressure is low at 75 over 40. Physical exam is notable for altered mental status and her GCS initially is calculated as 10. She is noted to have clear breath sounds with cardiac exam notable for slowed and delayed pulses. Initial laboratory work is notable for serum glucose of 180 milligrams per deciliter and a beta-HCG negative. Initial resuscitation has begun with IV fluids and atropine. Serum acetaminophen and aspirin levels are sent, and upon stabilization, the patient presents to the PICU for admission. So Rahul, to summarize key elements from this case... The patient has a history of depression with the prior attempt, an acute bout of altered mental status, bradycardia, hypotension, and hyperglycemia, all of which bring up a concern for an acute ingestion. So let's take a step back and talk about the approach to ingestions in the PICU. So Rahul, what are the key aspects to consider in the workup of this patient? That's a great question. I think I'll first tailor this discussion with emphasizing the importance of a history and physical. The history and physical are key. And what we want to do initially is stratify whether or not we're dealing with an acute or chronic ingestion. We also want to garner further history on baseline prescription medications a patient may be taking or have access to in the household. Finally, in the history, you want to Delineate whether the ingestion involves a single drug or co-ingestions. These are all first steps in evaluating your patient. Now, let's say we have an undifferentiated patient. I think management is paramount. And our initial management is focused on pattern recognition and acute stabilization. A brief initial screening examination should be performed on all patients to identify immediate measures required to stabilize and prevent deterioration of the patient. We need to assess the airway, vital signs, mental status, and then subsequently look at the pupil size and skin temperature along with the moisture of the skin. 
Now, these components of your physical exam should help allude to a toxidrome. And remember, toxidromes are very prevalent on board examinations. Anytime a patient has hypotension and bradycardia as their toxidrome, we should really consider A, a very life-threatening event, and B, a differential, which includes ingestion of beta blockers, digoxin, clonidine, as well as ingestion of CNS depressants, such as barbiturates, opioids, and even benzodiazepines. So Rahul, what are some of the diagnostic studies that you will want to send immediately in a patient with suspected ingestion? After initial stabilization, the immediate diagnostic studies to be performed include pulse oximetry, continuous cardiac monitoring, an EKG, and a capillary glucose measurement, especially if the patient is altered. IV access should be obtained in all cases of serious ingestion. You also want to send a beta-8CG when applicable, as well as specific acetaminophen and salicylate levels. An extended toxicology screen may be required on a case-by-case basis, and remember, they may not pick up all toxins in the screen. Now, one study found detectable serum acetaminophen concentrations in about 10% of all overdose patients. What was really interesting is that almost one-third of this subset denied ingestion of acetaminophen, indicating that there could be medications that could be combined with acetaminophen or specific co-ingestions. So Rahul, as you continue to focus on patient stabilization and ABCs, are there some more detailed lab studies to send in these patients with toxidromes? Absolutely. Now, symptomatic patients and those with an unreliable or unknown history should at minimum undergo a urine analysis and measurement of basic serum electrolytes, which include BUN, creatinine, and glucose. Measurement of serum ketones, creatinine kinase, LFTs, lipase, ionized calcium, and magnesium should also be performed in significantly ill patients. Now, additional testing may be useful in specific circumstances, and this is where you're really going to partner with your medical toxicologist and the poison control center. You may want to send in specific cases serum osmolality, especially if you are suspecting a toxic alcohol ingestion. We will discuss these specific alcohol ingestions in a separate episode. Now, say that you're in the emergency department or in the ICU, and your patient with a suspected toxidrome continues to be altered. In this case, you want to leverage a non-contrast head CT to rule out any sort of head trauma or CNS pathologies. EKG and echocardiography helps us to distinguish refractory hypotension due to vasodilation from pump failure. Chest x-ray may be needed to evaluate pulmonary edema and guide fluid management. An abdominal radiograph or ultrasound may be required in cases of suspected bowel ischemia or perforation. Ingestion of large number of calcium channel blocker tablets, especially those that are coated with the sustained release uh, coating, may aggregate to actually form bezoars in the gut, and that can cause gastrointestinal obstruction long-term. Now, Pradeep, to go back to our case with history and initial diagnostics only, how are we able to stratify whether this patient with hypotension and bradycardia took a calcium channel blocker versus a beta blocker? Rahul, that's a great question. 
Our patient had an electrocardiogram, which showed changes associated with calcium channel blocker poisoning, such as a prolonged PR interval and bradydesarrhythmias. Importantly, our patient's serum glucose was high at about 150 mg per deciliter, and this presence of hyperglycemia is important to distinguish calcium channel blocker from a beta blocker poisoning in which the patients present with hypoglycemia. The mechanism of hyperglycemia in calcium channel blocker ingestion involves the actual calcium channel blocker causing inhibition of calcium-mediated insulin release within the beta pancreatic cell. Now, remember that the serum glucose elevation is rarely clinically significant and, like we mentioned, is used for diagnostic purposes only to kind of stratify between beta blocker ingestion, which can cause hypoglycemia, and calcium channel blocker overdose, which, like we mentioned, causes hyperglycemia. Now, per our history, our patient had access to amlodipine, which is the likely agent she ingested. Pradeep, can you shed some light on how non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker overdoses are different from dihydropyridine or DHP overdoses? So Rahul, for that, let's review some basic science and pharmacology, okay? Calcium channel blockers can be divided into two major categories based upon their predominant physiologic effects. The dihydropyridines, which preferentially block the L-type calcium channels in the vasculature, and the non-dihydropyridines, such as verapamil and diltiazem, which selectively block L-type calcium channels in the myocardium. L-type calcium channels are responsible for myocardial contractility and vascular smooth muscle contractility. They also affect conducting and pacemaker cells. In general, the dihydropyridines, which have the suffix dipyridine, are potent vasodilators that have little negative effect on cardiac contractility or conduction at standard doses. In contrast, verapamil and diltiazem are relatively weak vasodilators but have a depressive effect on cardiac conduction and contractility. So Rahul, how does this framework help us with the understanding of calcium channel blocker ingestions? Now that we talked about the pharmacokinetics as well as the mechanism of action of these agents, let's go into the overdose. Now, overdoses with dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, again, they have the suffix dipine, amlodipine, nifedipine. They are preferentially going to affect the vasculature, and thus they can cause hypotension coupled with the reflex tachycardia. Although severe toxicity may result in hypotension and bradycardia. This is exactly what we saw in our patient, severe toxicity. Overdose with non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers like verapamil or diltiazem also causes a dangerous combination of hypotension and bradycardia. As these are cardiac-specific, other findings may include signs of heart failure, such as pulmonary crackles, hepatomegaly, JVD, or elevated central venous pressures. In anecdotal articles, calcium channel blocker poison patients may maintain a surprisingly clear mental status in the setting of hypotension. Now, Pradeep, let's conclude our episode by focusing on the management of calcium channel blocker overdose. We will break this section down into the initial resuscitation, the role of gastrointestinal decontamination, and specific medical therapies. Let's start with an ABC approach and initial resuscitation. Pradeep, can you highlight some key management pearls here? 
Yes, Rahul, an immediate consult with Poison Control Center is a must. The Poison Control Centers can help guide monitoring, investigational studies, as well as patient management. Now, the empiric use of glucagon, 5 to 15 milligrams IV, may be warranted when patient presents with hypotension and bradycardia. Glucagon promotes calcium entry into cells via stimulation of a receptor that is considered to be separate from the adrenergic receptors. Circulation is the main focus of treatment of calcium channel blocker exposures. Hypotension and bradycardia can be profound and refractory even to maximal therapy. Judicious use of IV fluids as well as vasopressors are the initial therapy for hypotension. Atropine for the initial treatment of bradycardia may be also required. Our patient in our case actually maintained a clear mental status despite hypotension and bradycardia. However, we need to reassess these patients frequently, both in the emergency room as well as in the ICU, as a precipitous deterioration is common and many will eventually require intubation and mechanical ventilation. And remember, these patients with their hypotension and bradycardia, they are high-risk intubations that require a team-based approach. With the exception of nimodipine, calcium channel blockers have poor CNS penetration. Therefore, drowsiness, seizures, or altered mental status in the absence of hemodynamic collapse should alert the physician to the possibility of co-ingestions. For patients with calcium channel blocker overdose, Pradeep, is there a role for orogastric lavage? Orogastric lavage and activated charcoal may be necessary in patients who present within one to two hours of an ingestion. However, make sure to use caution in a patient who has borderline mental status and who may not be able to protect the airway. Another clinical poll to consider is that vagal stimulation from orogastric lavage may exacerbate calcium channel blocker-induced hypotension and bradycardia. Let's go ahead and transition and talk about specific medical therapies. In diving deep into the literature, we will talk about the role of catecholamines and vasopressors, atropine, IV calcium, glucagon, insulin and dextrose, and then experimental therapies such as methylene blue and lipid emulsion therapies. Pradeep, what vasopressors or catecholamines are used in calcium channel blocker overdose? Rahul, typically direct acting vasopressors such as norepinephrine or epinephrine are preferred in calcium channel blocker overdose. Now, angiotensin II with the brand name Giapressa, a vasoconstrictor, can be considered in patients who are 18 years of age and above. Rahul, how does atropine help in calcium channel blocker overdose? This is a great question. Now, remember, atropine is a muscarinic antagonist, and thus, it should be administered to any patient with symptomatic bradycardia after a calcium channel blocker overdose. The pediatric dosing is 0.02 mg per kilo IV with the minimum dose of 0.1 milligrams to avoid the paradoxical bradycardia that may result from very small doses of this medication. Rahul, what about IV calcium in these patients? Now, calcium salts are often used to overcome the cardiovascular effects of calcium channel blockers. As the name implies, calcium channel blockers inhibit calcium. And it is important for us to understand that calcium channel blocker poisoning interferes with both the serum concentration and the intracellular handling of calcium. 
Anecdotally, high-dose continuous infusion of calcium should be administered. After a bolus dosing, a reasonable infusion of calcium chloride at a rate of 0.5 milliequivalents of calcium per kilo per hour should be considered. Now, close monitoring of the serum or ionized calcium concentration with measurements every two hours, as well as serial EKGs, are necessary to avoid clinically significant hypercalcemia, which has been reported with intensive calcium therapy. The use of an arterial line for serial labs and hemodynamic monitoring is essential. Pradeep, what about insulin and glucose? Rahul, that's a great question. High-dose insulin, a one unit per kilo bolus followed by an infusion anywhere from one to 10 units per kilo per hour is required in calcium channel blocker overdose, along with dextrose, which basically helps to counter the hypoglycemia. Now, hypokalemia can be seen due to shift of potassium intracellularly and requires close monitoring. High-dose insulin generally takes about 30 minutes to show any effects in calcium channel blockage, so be patient. The main beneficial effect is on myocardial function, i.e. ejection fraction and cardiac output, with subsequent improvement in blood pressure and perfusion, although improvement in cardiac rhythms have been reported. Now, investigational therapies such as methylene blue, 1 to 2 milligram per kilo, which has been used in sepsis, or lipid emulsion can also be tried as a last resort in those patients with severe hemodynamic issues, and even if can be used in patients who do not have cardiac arrest. Thanks so much, Pradeep, for highlighting that. And I would encourage you to visit our episode entitled PICU Applications of Lipid Emulsion Therapy, which can be found at picu.oncall.org. The use of lipids is actually pretty controversial. However, in general, an IV bolus of 1 to 1.5 mLs per kilo given over one minute of a 20% lipid emulsion solution will be your starting point. Now, after that 1 mL per kilo bolus is given and there is no response, you can actually repeat that dose every three to five minutes for a total of three bolus doses. Now, following the initial bolus dose, an infusion is started at a rate of 0.25 to 0.5 mLs per kilo per minute until hemodynamic recovery occurs. The infusion is generally maintained for about 30 to 60 minutes to create that lipid sink, and the infusion rate may be increased if the patient's blood pressure drop. So let's talk a little bit about procedures that may be required in calcium channel blocker overdose. One of them is a transvenous pacemaker. Now, a transvenous pacemaker may be placed if the transthoracic cutaneous pacer fails to capture in the face of symptomatic bradycardia. Pacing may decrease the need for pressors in a patient who may not tolerate a positive cardiac ionotrope because of cardiac ischemia, although this likely is not a concern in children. Cardiac pacing is typically required anywhere from 12 to 48 hours post the ingestion. Use of ECMO has also been studied in calcium channel blocker overdose. ECMO has been attempted in patients who have hypotension refractory to all pharmacological therapies. And again, this will require a very coordinated team-based approach. Rahul, what are the key objective takeaways from today's episode? To conclude this episode, I have two key takeaways. Number one, hypotension and bradycardia. It's a life-threatening toxidrome that is related to circulatory collapse and subsequent poor cerebral perfusion. The differential includes calcium channel blocker overdose, 
beta blocker overdose, digoxin, clonidine, as well as CNS depressants. A stepwise approach to calcium channel blocker overdose includes close monitoring of airway breathing circulation and in severely symptomatic patients, IV boluses of isotonic crystalloids, IV calcium salts, IV glucagon, IV high-dose insulin and glucose, vasopressors such as alpha agonist or angiotensin II agonist, as well as epinephrine, and then finally, IV lipid emulsion therapies in refractory cases. This concludes our episode on approach to calcium channel blockers. We hope you found value in our short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, PQ Doc on Call, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimenia. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you. 